So, okay, dinner is one of those great times of day for multiple reasons. My favorite bit about it, though, although it, it doesn't happen actually every day, is that there are these two stages of goodness that sort of roll out in front of you. So first is that substantial pile of sustenance that provides genuine nourishment. And second, though, is that sweet and tasty dirt which nourishes the soul. Maybe terrible for the outer man, but blessed for the inner man. And Joel 2, 18 to 32 is a bit like dinner in that regards. The first half of the passage in verses 18 to 27 is about the restoration of the land, the, the physical sustenance that people need. But the second half is about the restoration of the spiritual condition, which is that part that makes life genuinely worth living. And and so we see that these are two different stages of blessing from verse 28. Let's just consider that transition for, for a brief moment where Joel clearly began to explain the second stage of blessing. So we see there that it says, and it shall come to pass afterward. So he's looking at a later stage of blessing afterward that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. And so this verse casts the latter half of this passage well into the future, at least from Joel's point of view, as the spiritual blessing occurs after the restoration described in the first part of the chapter. So this passage, though, here's what I want us to think about. These verses should cause us to think deeply about God's desire for his people. And I wonder how often we actually consider how much God longs to have his people for himself. Because here's the thing, right? Christians often hear that we're meant to live for God's glory. We know, and that's right and good and true. We know that we're supposed to live lives centered on God by knowing him and making him known. But it can be easy for us to fall into this trap of thinking that God's glory is something separate, something distinct, unrelated even, to our good as His people. God's glory, indeed, must be our lives' central focus. There's I have no inclination whatsoever to question that in the least, but we must not think that His glory is disconnected from our good as His people. We, we in fact fail to give God due credit if we do not see that God glorifies Himself, even primarily by doing good to His people, because He loves them. And that should, that should make us think again about how much we consider, how much we reflect upon God's desire for His people. And so, so in our passage, so let's get a little bit of background. It's been a while since we've been in Joel. What's going on here? Joel likely wrote this after the whole book after Assyria had captured the northern part of Israel. Remember the nation divided into two kingdoms. So the northern kingdom was captured by Assyria. But he probably wrote this before Babylon 
had captured the southern kingdom called Judah, where he lived. So in that situation where he's writing to people in Judah, they've seen their their northern neighbors captured by foreign enemies. And Joel has told them the same would happen to them. In that situation, what would be the mindset of God's people as they looked in horror at the defeat of the northern territory? And more specifically, even more pointedly, how would they feel knowing that God brought this ruin upon his own people and, as Joel's first readers in the southern kingdom, how would they feel knowing that Joel was foretelling that the same fate was about to roll out upon them? I mean, the obvious thing, I guess, would be that they would feel like God is done with them, right? They they would presume that he no longer desired them as his people. The, the day of the Lord, as this book has so clearly announced, loomed as an event of destruction and God's total rejection of those who had once followed him as a nation. And the obvious question for us today, then, is... How often have you felt like God no longer desires you? And what does Joel say to us in that regard? And so the main, the main point that we're going to consider is that the reason to rejoice is that God is immensely desirous of his people and will act to reclaim them. The reason to rejoice is that God is immensely desirous of his people and will act to reclaim them. We're going to think about this in three points. Surprising provision, a surprising pouring out, and a surprising promise. So first, a surprising provision. So, okay, what we're going to do here, this point is going to explore verses 18 to 27, where, where Joel explained that first stage of blessing, which related to the restoration of physical blessings. So, so verse 18, if you look at that, it, that is the ground of our main theme about God's desire for his people. God became jealous for his land and had pity on his people. And that statement is the foundation of all that God promised in the rest of this chapter. God desired his land and pitied his people. God had made promises in the past, right? To Abraham and to David to be good to them and to their descendants. He had sworn that Abraham's offspring would be as numerous as the sands on the shore or as the stars in the sky. I've not tried to count them. But that seems like a difficult task. There's a lot. That's a big promise. He had promised that David's heir, heir, would reign on the throne forever. And so in contrast, though, to how God announced he would destroy Israel in the first half of Joel, in the second half, here in verse 18, God spoke about that time beyond their punishment when he reversed the curses that he had inflicted upon them. Joel foresaw 
that these people would repent. As verse 19 says, God answered them, which is the typical way that Scripture says that God heard His people when they cry to Him. So I think implicit it built in here is that they repented. And then verses 19 to 20 detail God's reversal of the desolation of their land. And they will again have grain, have wine, have oil, and no longer be defeated and shamed as a nation. Further, the the northerners, so, so Israel's enemies always came from the north. They're sort of situated right here in the bridge down to Egypt. And so their enemies always came from the north. And the northerners would be ejected. All of their enemies. Now, here we go. Verses 21 to 23 are super interesting, I I think. So, note how each verse announces the restoration of blessing to a, a specific kind of, of thing. So, verse 21, the land should rejoice. And then verses 22, the animals' food sources will be restored. And then verses 23, the children of Israel, so the children should be glad because their blessing is restored. Verses 24 to 27 explain how the children of Israel will have an abundance of food and provision and God will give back what Joel had predicted the locusts would decimate and God would restore them as his people. Now, here we go. The fascinating bit. I think this is super interesting. God promised blessing on Land, animals, and people. Does that order, does that arrangement sound familiar? Land, animals, people. Okay, so that, that arrangement, that order of restoration reflects the creation week. Right? God created the world by establishing the land and the sea, so, so the earth itself... And then established creation by making the animals. And then lastly, people. So in Joel, God repeated his promises according to the creation pattern, which isn't just an interesting observation. It makes a profound point. God was promising an act of new creation. He was going to redo all the things that the Israelites had undone. And you might, so maybe you're still wondering why it's worth pointing out this distribution of blessing in a repetition of the creation pattern. And there's an important application I want to stop and make here. So we need to see here that God cares about all the facets of your life. Certainly, yeah, this is where it always gets sort of awkward. Certainly, salvation has to be the fundamental concern for all of us. But God understands our need for physical sustenance. He He understands. In fact, He knows that we are earthy creatures because He made us that way with physical needs. And He even called that good. He didn't... So he doesn't simply rescue his people from their sins. 
He blesses them according to their physical needs with which he created them in the creation week. And so we also need to remember that we have to call on God for salvation. But we're also meant to call on him for our needs in the world as well. And we see here that God in his desire to have his people first created a place and a provision for his people. He created a place for them to live. So the, the surprising provision is that God meets his people's earthly needs. That brings us to our second point, the surprising pouring out. So in the previous point, God restored earthly blessings. And now we need to look at the second phase of blessing, which concerns spiritual realities. So in verses 28 to 32. Now, here's the, it, it may seem odd that Joel described earthly blessings before spiritual blessings. If, I mean, as I've in some ways indicated already, the spiritual blessings have to be foundational, more important. John Calvin said, this happens because God intended to show his reconciling work to his people openly and then to raise our thoughts even higher to spiritual grace. So it's a move from the lower to the higher thing. And we need to see that these promises of spiritual restoration come to true fulfillment in Jesus Christ. So read with me verses 28 and 29, if you will. And it shall come to pass afterward that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. Your old men shall dream dreams and your young men shall see visions. Even on the male and female servants in those days, I will pour out my spirit. Okay. Some of these verses are well known, I think, but I'm not sure that they are often well understood. So some think, as might be natural in some ways, some think that the emphasis is on, emphasis is on, the miraculous dreams and visions. As if receiving the Spirit entails experiencing this sort of miraculous thing. But if we pay close attention to these verses, we actually see that the emphasis is not on what people are doing, but who is doing it. These these verses emphasize the, the breadth of God's distribution of the Spirit, not, they don't emphasize the miracles accompanying the Spirit. God will pour out His, His Spirit on all flesh. And the following verses show what Joel meant by all flesh. God pours out his spirit spirit upon sons, daughters, old men, young men, male servants, female servants. In other words, everybody. That's the whole gamut of the population. So, There used to be, the thing going on here in the Old Testament, there used to be a small number of prophets who were specially empowered to proclaim God's word. But the Spirit's outpouring 
would do away with those differences so that all of God's people were would be fully equipped with the Holy Spirit. Fully equipped. Not saying that they didn't have the indwelling of the Spirit. The prophetic office, in other words, this, this role of prophet would cease because God would make all of His people able to understand His Word. Now, I would imagine some of you might be skeptical about this. No, no, no. The miraculous things. That's, that's the show, right? Well, the Apostle Peter, I think, confirms this take that I'm offering on this passage. So you may want to flip over to Acts 2. I'll summarize it for you if you don't want to make that jump. So in Acts 2, Peter quoted, as part of the first Christian sermon ever preached, he quoted Joel 2:28 to 32 to explain why the apostles could preach the gospel. Note this, to explain why the apostles could preach the gospel in languages which they had not learned. So in Acts 1.26, just so the end of Acts 1 tells us this is about the apostles. So in verses 1 to 4 of chapter 2, the 12 apostles were together at Pentecost. And the Holy Spirit came visibly upon them to anoint them in their callings to that foundational role of authority in the early church. And then... In Acts 5 to 13, the apostles could explain the gospel in languages that they had not learned. Which that is the miraculous gift of tongues. The gift of tongues which God no longer grants, as we even see here. It was tied to the apostolic era, their role. That gift is not about ecstatic, incomprehensible utterances. It is about evangelizing in real but unlearned languages. Now, that's sort of a side note. But we have to look closely at how Peter, the way that... This is the kind of stuff that if somebody ever tells me that they think Scripture is boring, I just think, you're not looking at it. You you don't get what's going on here because there's stuff that should fry our circuits. So, if we look closely at the way that Peter cited Joel to explain this outpouring of the Spirit, it gets really interesting. So, some people in this context thought the apostles were drunk because they couldn't understand them. Their words were in foreign languages. But Peter replied, they're not drunk. God has just fulfilled His promise to pour out His Spirit. Okay, This way that I'm going to point out the tension here in just a second. The way that the New Testament text here makes use of Joel can be a bit mind-bending, which should be fun. The scripture is infinitely deep. But here's the thing. That mental tension should... That's exactly the point. What is shocking about the differences of what we expect? That's how we understand scripture using scripture. So Peter quoted... Joel's prophecy, which was about dreams and visions to explain an event where no one dreamed or had a vision. Do you see the tension then in how Peter said that the Spirit's outpouring was happening 
through people doing different things than were actually mentioned in Joel's prophecy. What do we do with that? I do have an answer. So don't, don't feel lost just yet. This, I mean, but the thing is, this might seem a bit like a parent promising ice cream for their kid's birthday party and showing up with cake. Right? Still good. It just might seem like it's not really what was said. Unless Joel 2 was not about what the people were doing, but about who was doing it. So, Joel emphasized how the group empowered by the Spirit was widening. That's the point. The oldest to the youngest, sons and daughters, all the way down to the servants, would be able to understand God's Word in the way that the Old Testament prophets had been able to do that. Miracles were not the focus of the Spirit's outpouring But the fact that God was increasing his people's ability to hear and comprehend his word. It is not as though God is a parent who promised ice cream at their kid's birthday party, but brought cake instead. Rather, the parent said to the kid, you will have ice cream, but then shows up with ice cream for everyone. So God poured out the gift of His Spirit on all flesh, regardless of who they are, so that they all understand God's Word. Now, here's the bit about what they were doing. The prophets did understand God's Word through dreams and visions, which is why God inspired that sort of terminology in Joel. But in the fulfillment of this prophecy, We understand God's word through the proclamation of the gospel. Which is what we see in Acts. The surprising outpouring, which really shouldn't be surprising here, is that the gospel culminates all of God's promises about the Spirit. And that brings us to our third point, a surprising promise. We began... Okay, so we began by asking... How God's people felt, knowing that curses would soon come upon them. And I said they likely felt God was with them. The day of the Lord had been announced as one of curse and destruction for them. And Joel looked beyond that day of the Lord, however, beginning in chapter 2, verse 18, to God restoring his people A day of comfort rooted in God's jealousy to have his people, his desire for his own. And our first point considered the earthly blessings and the second point examined the promises of spiritual restoration which were fulfilled in the surprising pouring out in Acts 2 of the Spirit enabling widespread gospel proclamation. Now this point explores those spiritual promises again to connect them to how we might feel at times that God could be done with us. So read Joel 2, 30 to 32 with me. 
And I will show wonders in the heavens and on earth, blood and fire and columns of smoke. The sun shall be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. For in Mount Zion and in Jerusalem there shall be those who escape, as the Lord has said. And among the survivors shall be those whom the Lord calls. The surprise here is that the day of the Lord has already come in judgment. Verse 31. But now the day of the Lord is linked to these future promises about the Spirit's outpouring in salvation. So, how can the day of the Lord go from an event of curse to an event of rescue? And that shift can happen because once the curses have been satisfied, really pay attention to this. I I know it doesn't sound the most exciting, but it will become incredibly important in just a moment. So once the curses have been satisfied, the day of the Lord changes from a day of judgment to a day of salvation. Once the curses have been satisfied, some of you know where this is going. Once the curses have been satisfied, the day of the Lord changes from a day of judgment into a day of salvation. So the first question, though, is what are these wonders, this blood, fire, this smoke and darkness? Those don't really sound like pleasant things. And in fact, they are signs of God's wrath. If we see these things used throughout Scripture. So why are they alongside God's salvation? And and we know, I mean, do you remember that Peter included these verses, these things in his quotation from Acts 2 to explain what was happening at Pentecost? But but there wasn't any literal blood and smoke and, and the like there. But Peter saw these things as fulfilled. But if we look at the world, we get a picture of exactly what this means. I mean, Christians, do you not take part in salvation and have the Spirit indwelling you? Yes. But further, do you not live in a world marked by signs of God's wrath alongside that? Do we not see leaders around us who are increasingly godless? Do we not see hearts hardening all around us? We, we live in the midst of signs of God's wrath, as Joel foretold. But we also live in the unfolding fulfillment of the day of the Lord as a great day of salvation. And so the question is, to bring this back to that personal issue, do your difficulties in this world ever make you feel as though God is done with you? Do you ever feel like God has just left? Do you feel hopeless in your trials 
wondering why, if you belong to God, why you suffer so much and wrestle in this world, whether you cannot bear with your co-workers godless actions or cannot seem to settle yourself into a pattern of genuine and sustained passion for the Lord. And the thing is, Christians, hear me well. Your hardship is not because God has abandoned you. It is because we live this side of Christ's return when salvation dawns into the world alongside the lingering signs of God's wrath. Just like Joel and Peter said. God's wrath remains in the world. But that is not the last thing to say. As as we've said already, once the curses have been satisfied, the day of the Lord changes from a day of judgment into a day of salvation. And how do we take hold of that? How do we bring that home to us? Do you see... That the day of the Lord occurs, verse 40, sorry, verse 31, and it comes to pass, verse 32, that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. So God has to. God is just, and so He has to exhaust all of His just curses due to sin because He has to uphold goodness. He cannot leave evil. None of us want this, right? He cannot leave evil unpunished because he is good and must uphold righteousness. And we have all done wrong. We've all broken God's commands and have all violated our relationship with God. We're typically fine we maybe even happy enough to admit that we're not perfect but people generally flinch at admitting that they're wicked and we flinch because we know it's true and that means that we deserve the curse of death And so the choice before us then is who will bear that curse? If you reject the gospel, then you will endure that curse of death for all eternity. The locusts of God's wrath will devour you, body and soul, for all time as they devoured the plains of Israel. But the surprising promise is that those who call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. The Apostle Paul told us how to do this in Romans ten thirteen to 17. He, he quoted this verse. He said that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. And we do that by responding to the gospel about Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is God Himself. God 
the Son who assumed a human nature, not because He desired to be human, but because He desired to have His people. He lived the perfectly obedient life that is required to become a citizen of heaven. Moreover, He died on the cross, not for Himself, but in order to satisfy that curse of death that you deserve. And He offers to apply His perfect life and redeeming death to you if you would take hold of Him by faith. We call upon the Lord's name by casting ourselves into the care of Christ, trusting His work to forgive our sins and earn our place in heaven. Christ came because God desires His people. As verse 32 tells us, He will make survivors, those whom He calls, and those whom He calls will call on Him. He offers you then rescue if you will trust in Jesus Christ for salvation. And He changes the day of the Lord from an event of curse into an event of comfort as we await the return of our blessed Redeemer. Let's pray. Father God, some of these passages can seem foreign, unfamiliar to us. And yet, when we dive into them and think hard about them, we see that they're not so different from the life we have or the world in which we live. There are people who have endured hardship and need to be reminded that God desires his people. And there are people who have done wicked things who need to call on your name for salvation. And we pray that you would do that work among us here. As you promised in this chapter that there will be survivors because you call them to be such. We ask now that you would call effectually, that you would do your work that you have decreed to do of bringing people to faith. Shatter the walls of unbelief. Clear away the smoke of our doubts and make Christians here today. Call people so that they would call upon the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and be saved. And do a work in the hearts of your people that they might see that you, no matter what hardship they see around them, that they would know that you are jealous for them. That you desire your people and you sent your Son. And we await the day of the Lord not in terror, not as one of curse, but the day of the Lord is a comfort for us as we long to see the return of our glorious Savior who will install His kingdom in full and give us a home where we are loved forever. We pray these things in the name of Christ for His sake. Amen.